Now, I'm sure you won't remember this, but my first, very first Sunday with you all, I preached on the Gospel of John, which I admitted was my least favorite gospel out there. So today feels good and right that we are ending on a higher note, the highest, in fact, because Mark is my favorite gospel. He's the earliest, which I respect. Uh, He is the shortest, which, as a person whose job involves writing 10-minute speeches, I admire. And he's the darkest. He's the most anxious, which I can feel. I think Mark's also the bravest. Take this passage today that we heard read just now in the gospel. It's one of those passages that scholars are united on, as far as un- <laughs> the ability to be united goes along schol- in scholars' terms, about saying that this is actually one of the most historically verifiable pieces of Jesus' life. This much we're certain of. Before the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was baptized by a man named John in the River Jordan. Now, scholars agree about this, because, not because uh, anyone had any Polaroids from the day or that we can, like Jesus' white, lacy baptismal gown is hidden away in some reliquary, but they, they don't have any other eyewitnesses outside of this account either. They agree on this because this story is embarrassing. If you were making up a Messiah, this is not the sort of story that you would tell. Here's why. Paul has writes much earlier than the Gospels, right? In many cases, a decade or two before any of the Gospels are written. And he repeats a piece of doctrine that has already formed in this early Christian faith, that Christ is sinless the spotless lamb, right, the total innocent, why then would he need to go through a baptism that John says is for the forgiveness of sins? Why tell a story about an unnecessary baptism? Or had he sinned? Well, it's embarrassing. And the editing of this story starts immediately with the other later gospel writers Luke gets his copy, and he says, well, let's just not mention who does this baptism. John thinks real hard about it, and he says, well, I think I'll just leave this part out. Matthew starts his copy, and he tries another way. He has John the Baptist tell Jesus that he's not worthy to baptize him. You remember the story? You should be baptizing me, Lord. You've got phenomenal cosmic powers. I'm a worm and no man. And John only consents to baptize Jesus after this verbal self-immolation. But Mark heads straight in, caring nothing for our developed doctrine, and says, fine, this is an embarrassing story, a flaw in the system, a crack in the logic. But do you see the light getting through here? This is the first Sunday for us here the first Sunday after the Epiphany. And we tell this story because Jesus is having one. You are my beloved son, a voice says to him. In you I am well pleased. 
Mark is telling the story of Jesus' baptism, but is not relating baptism to a reductive notion of the forgiveness of sin. He says his baptism is like an epiphany, an understanding, a revelation of belovedness and purpose that, I think, set Jesus on the path that he was going to take for the rest of his life. There are different ways to tell the story of Jesus. Everyone has their own emphasis. Gospel writers, you and me too. What version are you telling? Because the way you tell the story matters, especially, I think, the ones that we wish we'd never had to tell. The hard ones, the embarrassing ones. How do you tell them? Imagine, if you will, for a moment, a wealthy, predominantly white parish in the midst of the segregation crisis in Arkansas. You start to school for their children to attend when the public ones have closed. Generations later, after that beloved school had gone the way of all things in this transitory life and closed, the doors are reopened, now used for a school whose student population is 98% black, the very population the schools had been closed in response to by the governor and prison. What a tale of redemption if I've ever heard one. A revelation of belovedness. This could be the way that you tell the story. I've heard some of you telling it to me often in ways greater than words. Imagine a parish that split in the 90s. And what was the split over? I'll tell a lot of different stories here. But they circle around the central issue of homosexuality, and it kind of culminates in 1996 with the election of a dean who would not say that being gay was a sin. I was an 11-year-old in Kansas then, where the very worst insult I could call someone was gay, even considering my vocabulary that I consider was pretty colorful for its years. This past fall, on November 11th, you and I were together at my marriage to Melissa. All the love and support I felt from you could have flown me across the Atlantic without a qualm. Who knew that our stories, yours and mine, would converge in the happiest days of my life? Imagine a parish full of people with complicated histories and connections to one another, to the town, to the bishop, a parish with generational risings and fallings. Imagine a story, then, that was like Jesus's, the story of ultimate power becoming humble, of being taught and accepting the way of the cross. Imagine a people willing to let go of their desire for control and safety and prestige, and who looked back on this time in the wilderness without bitterness to say, it was there. It was there we learned what mattered. It was there I saw Jesus, and I now 
and see him in the people least like me in the world. What an epiphany. Those of you who have told me these stories have told me the story of Jesus. The wilderness where John preaches is a hard place to visit. It's bone dry. The sun is blinding in the desert. We step into frigid and murky waters for a baptism for the repentance of sins, and we go under. We experience death, death in all its forms, the loss of our control, the loss of the ways of life that we loved. Sometimes I've walked alongside you in the slow and agonizing slope of a long-term illness. Sometimes it's come as suddenly as the ring of a telephone. We all go under. There's no way to get back to. But that's not the aim of the Christian hope. It's not why we're here, to get back to some past splendor that was. The Christian comes out of this and asks, how are we changed? How can we change? Because when we are brought up out of the water, the story changes. There's an epiphany, a voice pronounces not just forgiveness of sins, but a love that can guide you for the rest of your life. That is the story of Jesus. Is that the voice that guides you? Brene Brown writes that only once you claim your story, your past, can you begin to imagine a future imbued with hope. Can you begin to write a brave new ending? The wilderness becomes an epiphany. So my friends, I bless you with all my heart. May you continue to look for the stories of those around you. May God enliven your imaginations with resurrection. May you live and feel your belovedness in God. And may you tell the story of Jesus. Amen.